Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 35. This episode was inspired by my conversation with Pernoy in the previous episode, episode number 34. I enjoyed the conversation with him that took me to the edges of my expertise. In fact, it took me so far to the edges that one question in particular stumped me and I ended up cutting it from the episode. Pernoy asked my thoughts on using a kombucha scoby for a coffee fermentation. I ended up editing the question out because I didn't have a useful answer. After we hung up, I felt uneasy that I couldn't give him better direction, so I decided to dedicate some time to the subject. Well, the original goal was to talk about alternative microbial starters, and I was going to cover kombucha, lactoferments, and koji in a single episode. But then as I started organizing thoughts and notes, I realized I would need two episodes. And now, it looks like each topic is going to get its own episode. So, once again, what I thought could be covered in one is probably going to end up being its own series. Anyway, today's episode is a little bit longer, but remember to take breaks because it will be dense in some parts. I will cover some background, share my personal history with the beverage, and we will go into the specific yeast and bacteria responsible for the flavors of kombucha, and then I will give you my advice for applying it to coffee fermentations. Okay, let's just dive in. Do you guys even drink kombucha? Coming from California, kombucha is about as normal as orange juice. But I imagine it might not be as popular in other parts of the world. Kombucha is probably more popular in North America and Europe, which are buying countries, and probably very rare in producing countries. I can imagine a near future where buyers are drawn to or supportive of kombucha process without understanding what they may be asking producers to do. Or similarly, producers wanting to be ahead of the curve and differentiate their coffee in a new way, borrowing methods like we have from beer and wine. My hope is that this episode helps coffee producers experiment intelligently and with intention to maximize positive results. If you're a coffee buyer or consumer, I hope you'll be curious and critical if you see these words pop up on a label. I hope the information in this episode helps you be a better consumer by questioning what you read on labels and websites. So like I said, where I come from, in Northern California, kombucha is a very common beverage. Even in Ohio, many common grocery stores have a kombucha section. But for the uninitiated, kombucha is a soured and slightly carbonated fermented beverage traditionally made from sweetened tea. Its origins are said to be in northeastern China. Historically, kombucha has been consumed in Japan, Korea, Vietnam, China, and parts of Russia. Even though the origins of kombucha in China go back to 200 BCE, it's only recently that the drink has made it over to the West thanks to the growing fascination with all things probiotic. If you are concerned with your health, you're probably also taking care of your gut health. And if you take care of your gut health, then you're probably doing your best to consume more probiotics. In the West, kombucha is marketed as a health drink to promote good gut health and digestion. However, in the mainstream versions, there's often so much sugar added to make it taste good to Western audiences that I'm not sure it's quite the miracle health drink anymore. I wasn't sure how popular kombucha was to make a whole episode about it, so I did a poll asking the patrons to weigh in. I gave three options. 
85% answered that they had drunk it before or have it often, which actually was pretty surprising that 85% of the people knew what I was talking about because uh, we have a very uh, international audience. 14% uh, answered that they had heard of it but had not actually personally drank it. And only one person said they didn't know what I was talking about at all. On top of the the poll, the comments, a lot of people left their comments, and this was one of the more kind of interactive posts on the, the Patreon uh, platform. And so I really enjoyed reading a lot of the comments, and even people were commenting that they really enjoyed reading the comments from kombucha around the world. So I want to share some of them with you right now. Salanthrope said, at least here in the Southeast US, it's in every grocery store and most gas stations. So I think it's a lot less niche than it was just a few years ago. So this was surprising to me because if it's in gas stations, it's pretty mainstream. I was thinking that, you know, having a section in a, in a regular grocery store, not having to go to like a farmer's market uh, meant that the drink had really transcended the, uh, the popularity. But the fact that it's in gas stations, that is that is next level mainstream. Tereska Bala from the Czech Republic wished that I had included a fourth option in the poll. She said, she said, ha I missed D. Tried it, didn't like it, never again. I get the health benefits and I can admit it could taste good, but there's a big fuss about kombucha for a few years now in the Czech Republic. But I've recently tried kombucha coffee and I didn't like it one bit. Joel Eastlick said, a kombucha tasting room just opened up in a new space where a coffee shop went out of business here in Tampa. Super familiar with the drink, but not a fan. Joel and Tereska are in good company. Many coffee lovers left comments that they did not like the beverage, or they had their own cultures and drank it all the time. It was surprisingly polarizing. All right, you'll have to forgive me. I tried to get a phonetic pronunciation of this. It is a Nordic name, and uh, yeah, it's really hard to pronounce people's names when you just see them written on the internet. Hey, this is post-editing Lucia jumping in and realizing that I had such a hard time saying this name that I reached out to him and I'm going to let him say his own name. Yeah, that last name is kind of a mouthful for me as well. Uh, I'll say them both together, try to help you out. Maybe one day you'd like to give it a try. Øystein Veflingsta, Veflingsta. The D at the end is not pronounced, just the way we do things. And this is what he said. Kombucha has made its way around the world. I remember back in 2001 when it started to become popular in Norway. Last year, the wave hit my current city, Belo Horizonte, in Brazil. Just like where craft beer is new, put that in quotes, it suffers from poor control and poor understanding of the process. This will be a great learning experience. I love kombucha, but I seldom like it, just like coffee. Lowell Powell says, Mayra makes kombucha all the time in Santa Elena, Honduras. She is always adding different fruit like jamaica or pineapple. Great acidity. I have wondered if the SCOBY would influence the coffee fermentation. And you might think, wait, coffee producers in Honduras are avid kombucha makers? Even though Maida is from Honduras, I know Maida, and she spent a lot of time living in Oakland, California, so she must have picked up the hippie habits there. I do not think many other Honduran coffee producers are making their own kombucha. So like I said, I grew up where kombucha is readily abundant. I love fermented products. I care deeply about gut health, and yet, I wouldn't touch kombucha with a 10-foot pole. And this was why I couldn't answer Pernoy's question about how it could apply to coffee. Until now. 
So there are two reasons that I have such little experience with kombucha. One is due to my wine education, and the second is due to a conversation that I overheard 13 years ago. First, let me remind you of my education. I started my degree in winemaking before I was old enough to legally drink alcohol. Most of the other students were much older because they were master's or PhD students in the wine program. The wine program at UC Davis back in 2005 was small enough that undergrads and grad students would be mixed together. So for example, one of my classes would be taught by a teaching assistant, like a PhD candidate, and then an hour later in another class, we would be lab partners, equals. Many others in the program who were neither masters nor PhD candidates were at least getting their second bachelor's degree. Many had already had careers in other fields and wanted to come back to school and do something they were passionate about. Sometimes my other lab mates would be grad students who were older than me, or a 47-year-old retired lawyer looking for a new career. I was 19. I didn't have any drinking experience. In the United States, the legal drinking age is 21, and I was such a square that I didn't drink before I was legally of age. However, even if you're not 21, you can still be in the wine program because there is so much chemistry, biology, and plant science that by the time you need to take your wine tasting classes, you should be 21. When I finally turned 21 and was let into the wine sensory classes, I felt very insecure that I was behind all of the other students in class because of my youth and inexperience. Even my fellow undergrads, who were also young, who were also my age, usually came from a wine family meaning they already had a winemaker in the family or their families drank wine often. One of my closest friends in the program had parents who were connoisseurs of wine and had a weekend house in Napa and always had wine at dinner that my friend could try while he was growing up. It's kind of a weird degree to get into so young, so usually the people attracted to it are already connected to wine in one way or another. But I got into it kind of by accident, not because I loved wine, but it was a way that I could practice chemistry and microbiology without having to work in a traditional stuffy lab setting. And the second contributing factor that kept me away from kombucha was a conversation I overheard between two tasting room employees. The tasting room guides who work in a Napa tasting room must have excellent palates. All the wine that is served that day must be tasted before it's poured to guests. They must quality control every single bottle they pour. It would be very embarrassing if a guest was poured a glass with a defect, if the guest caught it, but not the wine professional. I've talked in other episodes about the main defect they are looking for, called TCA or cork taint, but there are other defects that we need to look out for, like oxidation and volatile acidity. When I was still a young wine intern, I was having lunch in the break room one day, and some of the tasting room workers came in. I recognized one as a woman who had worked at the winery for a long time, and the guy had just started, like me. They grabbed their lunch from the fridge, and then the woman said, Wait, you drink kombucha? And the guy said something like, Oh yeah, I love it. And then he offered her some. And she said that she liked it too, and that she used to drink it, but that it ruined her palate and made her a bad wine taster, so she doesn't allow herself to drink it anymore, even though she really enjoyed it. My ears perked up when I heard this, and at that moment, 13 years ago, I made the connection that kombucha would make me a bad wine taster. I was already insecure about my tasting abilities, and I felt like I was behind my peers because I was young, and I didn't grow up drinking wine, so I couldn't afford to pick up new bad habits that would hold me back further from being a good taster. Even years later, even after I stopped working in the wine industry and switched to coffee, 
even though it was no longer relevant to my career, I still had this subconscious connection that I should stay away from kombucha. But was she right? Why would kombucha make someone a bad wine taster? For that, we need to go into how kombucha is made. The kombucha beverage is a product of a fermentation with the help of a mother culture, a SCOBY, which is an acronym for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. The bacteria in the culture are predominantly acetic acid bacteria, meaning they are high producers of acetic acid. Acetic acid is a wine defect and can be due to sloppy winemaking practices or bad storage and improper aging. So what is desirable in one drink, kombucha, is a mistake in a different drink, wine. The star feature of one beverage is a sign that the processing has failed in another. And you guys know this is one of my favorite themes, context. The context matters. So by liking and drinking kombucha often, the woman inadvertently slash accidentally trained herself to like a defect in wine. If she only trained herself to like a defect, it still might be okay because she could still recognize it and have the context. She could say, oh, I like this and because I like this, it must be high in acetic acid and maybe I won't pour that bottle for a guest, I'll just open a new one. It's kind of like reverse engineering. I think I've mentioned before that when I had sensory practice with the French perfumer Alexandre Schmidt, he was trying to teach us defects, and he would dip these thin, long white strips of paper into small, unlabeled vials of oil and pass the strips around the group, and in front of everyone, we would have to identify the chemical compound responsible for the aroma. The first time he passed us butyric acid, I embarrassed myself by declaring how lovely I found the aroma. In front of the whole winemaking group, I described it favorably and didn't realize it was a defect. Alexandre is very French and direct, and he quickly told me how wrong I was to like this aroma because it was a defect. We practiced often, and so the next time he came to visit and had us identify aromas, and if I detected one I liked, if, if, if I found the smell pleasant, I knew it was because it reminded me of eating papayas in Guatemala. And I knew if I liked it, it must be butyric acid, and I had to identify it as a defect. My brain would be like, mmm, tasty, uh, I mean, bad, bad, because I wanted to fit in with my winemaking team that found the smell vomit-inducing, like full gag reflexes sometimes, because he would test us on different strengths. Sometimes a low concentration of a bad aroma can be pleasant, but even at the high concentrations that made my colleagues gag, my memories were so strong that I always enjoyed the aroma. I could train myself to detect it, but the childhood memory was too old and too deep and I couldn't train myself to think of it as a defect. To me, it was a lovely, beautiful, juicy, ripe papaya. So I could reverse engineer butyric acid, and the woman who liked kombucha could maybe reverse engineer the acetic acid in kombucha, but that wasn't the only problem. The problem is one of sensitivity. If she drank it often enough, her taste buds would get flooded with acetic acid and over time she would become less sensitive. When a small amount was found in a wine bottle, she wouldn't be able to identify it. Repeated exposure makes us less sensitive. It's a fine line between enough exposure to be able to detect and identify a flavor, but not so much exposure that you lose your sensitivity and can't identify it as easily. I didn't have the problem with papayas because good luck getting a ripe and healthy papaya in North America. I was at no risk to lose my sensitivity because I never had the opportunity to eat papayas in Napa. 
But as we've already talked about, kombucha is available everywhere. And you might be surprised to know that acetic acid in wine is not just a matter of cultural preference, like me with papayas. Acetic acid content in wine is actually regulated by the government. The legal limit is 1.5 grams per liter. And if you're at the levels where you might have a legal problem, it can be very expensive to fix it. You have to pay thousands of dollars to rent a reverse osmosis machine and get your wine below the legal limits. And in the process of using a reverse osmosis machine, you can strip your wine of the flavor and the actual you know, positive attributes that your wine has. So you can end up lowering its overall quality. So if you have high levels of acetic acid, it's expensive and fixing it can lower the quality and most of the time it can be avoided with good winemaking practices and a sensitive palate to be able to detect a problem before it gets out of control. Think about how volatile acetic acid is. For example, vinegar, the kind that you put on your salad, has a very strong smell. And as little as 4% acetic acid gets you that, that salad dressing, that, that balsamic vinegar uh, aroma. And 4% is 40 grams per liter, okay? 4% is 40 grams per liter, and we're talking in wine at 1.5 grams per liter. So the legal limit is 1.5 grams per liter, but the normal detection level is actually half that. At 0.7 grams per liter, the general public could detect something off with their wine. But a wine professional, a trained person, can detect at one-tenth the legal limit, at 0.125 grams per liter. Why is it important to have this level of sensitivity? Because in wine, there are a lot of precursors that can be turned into even more acetic acid. It's important to be able to detect the beginnings of a problem so you can catch the horse before it runs out of the barn and the problem gets truly out of control and you have to rent a reverse osmosis machine and you have to spend all that money and then your wine is kind of crap anyway. Okay, so if you're feeling a little antsy, if you're short on time, this might be a good time to pause, take a break. I'm going to drink my coffee for one second and let's get back into it. So I mentioned the SCOBY, that kombucha has both yeast and bacteria simultaneously fermenting. The interesting thing about kombucha is that it's not just the acetic acid bacteria that produce acetic acid. The yeast can also produce acetic acid. We haven't talked about this on the podcast before. I've tried really hard to keep it simple for you guys, to try to associate yeast with their primary metabolites of alcohol, carbon dioxide, and secondary metabolites like the fruity esters and thiols, and on the other side, to associate bacteria as acid producers. You may have seen some of my slides or drawings where a yeast takes a molecule of glucose and converts it to alcohol and carbon dioxide, and then a little lactobacillus bacteria takes a glucose molecule and turns it into lactate. These two drawings are meant to represent two separate fates for a glucose molecule. And you might be like, wait a minute, I thought acetic acid bacteria were called acetic acid bacteria because they produce acetic acid, and now you're telling me yeast also makes acetic acid? Well, yes, microbes and their metabolites are complicated. It's like labeling me a fermentation specialist. I am that, but I'm also a woman, and I am a knitter. I am many things all at once, and none of those things contradict each other. It's episode number 35, and I think you guys are ready for the next level of complexity and where microbiology gets to be the most fun, because the deeper you go, the more the lines get blurred and you cannot find such convenient and linear distinctions. 
This is where we can start to classify microbes as heterofermenters and homofermenters. Many lactic acid bacteria are homofermenters, meaning they produce a single product, lactic acid. But there are also heterofermenters that produce lactic acid and carbon dioxide and other metabolites too. Don't worry about which bacteria are homo or heterofermented now. I just want you to know that they exist and to not be too rigid and think that only lactic acid bacteria make lactic acid or only acetic acid bacteria produce acetic acid. And acetic acid is one of the reasons I'm troubled by how we market coffee based on processing descriptions. It troubles me because labeling a fermentation as bacteria dominated because of the acetic acid doesn't work in microbiology because it's not so clear cut. Many species of yeast also produce acetic acid. Let's look at three possible ways acetic acid can end up in your fermentation. So number one, the most common, you can get acetic acid in your fermentation because you have acetic acid bacteria and you are fermenting in an open container with lots of access to oxygen, right? Acetic acid bacteria are obligate aerobes. They, they need oxygen. Okay, way number two. So unlike wine and beer fermentations, coffee fermentations are predominantly uninoculated and uncontrolled. An uninoculated fermentation is likely to have wild yeast like Hansenula, Cleckera, Bertanomyces. Those yeasts produce acetic acid as part of their healthy, normal functioning. Bertanomyces, which is already being used in coffee fermentations, is an interesting case. When it's grown in low oxygen environments, called semi-anaerobiosis, it led to an increase of acetic acid, acetaldehyde, and ethyl acetate. So depending on the environment, the same microbes will behave differently. Let's put a pin in that for a moment because there's a third way acetic acid can end up in a fermentation. So number three, we just looked at uninoculated, uncontrolled, healthy fermentations of wild yeasts. But what if you do inoculate? You can inoculate with the yeast Saccharomyces, but if nutrient requirements are not met, if the temperature goes to extremes, either too cold or too hot, if the fermentation is unhealthy, meaning it doesn't have enough, uh, enough nutrients, the yeast will produce acetic acid as an indicator of stress. This is why intention matters. Acetic acid production could be a good sign, a positive sign, if you encourage acetic acid bacteria or perhaps Brettanomyces. Or the same acetic acid, the same product, could be a signal of a bad job. For example, if you stressed out your Saccharomyces, one of the ways they tell you they are unhealthy is by producing a lot of acetic acid. You know the saying that all roads lead to Rome? In microbiology, many roads lead to acetic acid. It's a component in vinegar, kombucha, wine, beer, sake, ciders, cheese, yogurt, and cacao. Oh my gosh, you guys, I just realized that we are 35 episodes in and I still don't have an episode on cacao fermentations. Okay, I need to fix that. There's a lot to do. I, I promised a whole acid series. I'm hoping that a lot of the acid, uh, some of your acid appetite will be satisfied by this episode. Uh, but then we have to do the other alternative uh, starters. And then I have to do a cacao episode for you guys. Okay, anyway, moving on. Uh, the point is that there are many microbes that produce acetic acid for various reasons. Sometimes it's a desirable part of a healthy fermentation, and sometimes it's a sign of something gone wrong, an undesirable byproduct. And remember, it's not just the presence of acetic acid that matters, but the concentration. 
In low concentrations, acetic acid is fruity and vibrant and really, really pleasant. But in high concentrations, it's connected to rot and vinegar. Let me share another example I recently learned that may help you understand how fun biology is. So I love dahlias. If you've seen the Patreon videos, you'll know that I have a ton of wild dahlias all over the farm in Colombia. I harvested some tubers and planted dahlias so that they would grow closer to our cabin. Two months later, I noticed powdery mildew on the leaves and the flowers looked weak and wilted. Since I saw mildew, I thought maybe it was too much moisture that was causing it. We get a lot of rain here. I mean, a lot. So I thought that maybe they were getting too much water. And it's true. Too much moisture can cause mildew. But then I learned that so can being too dry. So we created this situation where it's raining buckets and buckets of water for hours, but the dahlias, because they're so tucked into the house, stay completely dry. So this was a situation where opposite conditions can lead to the same end product. Too much rain equals powdery mildew. Too little rain equals powdery mildew. And if you look at ways to get rid of it in plants, one suggestion is to spray a solution with baking soda, which has a pH of 9, meaning it's very basic. But the suggestion right below that is to try spraying your plants with vinegar, which is very acidic. Vinegar and baking soda are opposite ways to solve the powdery mildew problem. So to be clear, I'm not a botanist, I'm not a horticulturist or an agronomist, I'm just an amateur gardener who googled powdery mildew. But my guess is that while baking soda and vinegar are opposite tools, they both accomplish the same goal of shifting the environment so that it's no longer hospitable to the fungus. And a shift in either direction works. You can shift one way to be too basic and knock it off of its um, you know, ideal conditions, or you can shift it the other way and be too acidic and again, knock it off of its favorable conditions. And this is what I want to share with coffee producers about your fermentations. Sometimes you need to do the exact opposite of what you did last time to get the same or a similar result as last time. The mentality that I see that doesn't work very well is trying to treat fermentations like robots or recipes. The traditional way to consistency is trying to replicate exactly what happened last time. But fermentations are dynamic, not static. Doing a carbon copy of what worked last time is not a good strategy for getting the same result. I see producers struggling with this all the time. They diligently pick the same coffee from the same part of the farm and put it in the same fermentation tanks that they've been using for years or generations. Then they wash the coffee after the same number of hours and they dry it in the same conditions in the same beds like they always have. And yet, the cup is different. The results are different, no matter how much they try to make everything exactly the same. I think this is also because most of the producers I meet are engineers, and engineers think in a very logical and linear way. In my experience, engineers need to unlearn a lot of the thinking models to be good fermentation stewards. Engineers ask me things like, what is the best bricks to start a fermentation? Or what is the best pH to end the fermentation? Which sounds to me as ridiculous as asking, what is the best sunshine? Everything in microbiology always depends on many other systems. And with food products, it's more complicated because you're depending on human taste preferences and then marketing. So don't think I'm a total hippie when it comes to my fermentations. Yes, I track bricks and pH every few hours. I use numbers and curves too. But more important than that, I work with my clients to use our eyes and ears and noses to see how the fermentation is doing. 
What is the activity like? How often is it bubbling? How big are the bubbles? What does it sound like? Is it crackling or is it still? What does it smell like? Is it like fresh, unripe bananas? Or can we start to smell the stress of the microbes? Can we see if they are happy and active or sluggish and tired? You might be thinking that since I mentioned acetic acid is a defect in wine, why would you want that in your coffee? And maybe you don't. But for consumers of dry process or natural coffee, acetic acid is an important component. The fruitiness in that process is largely due to acetic acid. And maybe you're a producer in Colombia or India that has thunderstorms during harvest and laying your coffee to dry on a raised bed for three weeks of sunshine is not an option because you don't have that much sun. Instead of forcing the dry process and praying for good weather, you could focus on a wash process, which is a traditional process in many humid regions, meaning you could pulp the coffee and encourage yeast like Hanthanula or Cleckera or Brettanomyces or Saccharomyces to produce acetic acid in the tank in much less time. That's one way to make a wash coffee resemble a dry process, opposite roads leading to the same or at least a similar endpoint. So I hope that you're starting to see that marketing coffee based on process is actually more limiting for producers. There's a flavor expectation tied with processing that can put producers into a box and limit creativity and innovation. I think we should remove the processing from the coffee labels and focus on what the customers really care about, flavor descriptors. If a customer wants a fruity and bright coffee, why do they care if the producer did it in 48 hours washed or 21 days on a raised bed? Why do we push producers to make a flavor profile in only one way when there are many ways that can better suit different environments, conditions, resources, and time constraints? This is the part that I've really struggled with in, in labeling. It's kind of this you know, hypocrisy of wanting to celebrate the producer, celebrate production, and label and, and talk about how the, the coffee was made, but the, the other side of that, the, the thing that we're inadvertently doing is pigeonholing producers into a certain uh, recipe, into a certain protocol that may not be necessary. So I've, I've seen that, yes, in some ways we are celebrating the origins of the coffee, but in other ways we're really limiting producers and making them do very complicated, inappropriate for the climate, inappropriate for the culture processes. And again, we can accomplish the flavors, like what we really care about is a flavor. So we can accomplish that in many different ways. And focusing too much on process doesn't let us do that. All right, that was a long tangent to explain why I stayed away from kombucha because of the high acetic acid content and why I thought it would make me a, a bad wine taster. But I hope you can see, and I hope that I've proven that acetic acid production could be useful in coffee production as a wet process method that approximates a dry process method. But the question remains, so even if acetic acid can be really helpful and we may want to encourage that in a wet process, the question remains, can kombucha starters or scobies help us in processing coffee? So let's back up a little bit. How does this fermentation work? Are you part of the 15% who is unfamiliar with kombucha? If you don't get my newsletter with pictures, take a moment to pause this episode and Google kombucha. Because if you don't have a visual for the SCOBY, this next part is going to be really confusing. Okay, if we're all back here now, it's because you have met the gelatinous creature that is a SCOBY. So we're going to start at the end with the Y. The Y stands for yeast. So yeast like Saccharomyces 
uh, do the normal fermentation that we're used to, right? They turn sugars into ethanol. But then the B in the SCOBY, the bacteria, bacteria like glucunobacter and acetobacter oxidize that ethanol into acetic acid. The acetic acid bacteria excrete cellulose, and that is, that's what forms the raft. And that raft, that gelatinous creature, is called a zugleal mat. So it's a visible raft on the surface of the container. Because kombucha is usually fermented in glass, you can clearly see two environments, one above the raft and one below the raft. The one below the raft is a lower oxygen environment because the raft covers the surface of the fermentation like a lid. So the bacteria that are on the raft have this access, this ability to have both the lower, in contact with the lower oxygen environment, so where the yeast are producing ethanol, so they have contact with the ethanol, but then they also have contact with the environment above the raft, which is completely open and a very oxygen-rich environment, so that they're able to oxidize that ethanol from below the surface with the oxygen from above the surface. And that's how they produce acetic acid. And as you know, acetic acid bacteria are obligate aerobes, meaning they need oxygen. So this raft is a genius way to give everybody what they want. The yeast has a mostly anaerobic environment to create alcohol, and the bacteria has aerobic conditions on the top. The yeast take about two units of sugar and make one unit of alcohol. We covered this in depth in episode 15. And then the acetic acid bacteria convert one unit of alcohol into slightly less than one unit of acetic acid. And because it's slightly less, it means that there's a little bit of alcohol left over. Many people are surprised to learn that kombucha contains alcohol. Well, can contain alcohol. Sometimes it's very little, like 2-4%, to but it's a good thing to be aware of. Um, but alcohol is also very volatile, but it could be even less than that depending on how it was made. And store brands are unlikely to contain alcohol, because then again, it has to be regulated and taxed and whatever. So you're probably pretty safe if you're buying it from a store. But if you're making it yourself or you're maybe getting it at a farmer's market or from somebody else who makes it themselves, it will be less regulated and it's more likely to have some alcohol left in the brew. So you might be wondering if when you make kombucha, there is a little bit of alcohol left in the beverage. If you use a kombucha process to process your coffee, will there be alcohol left in your coffee? Well, I think alcohol in a coffee fermentation is actually a good thing. We know it's a good solvent, so I believe that it helps the secondary metabolites, the flavor precursors, get into the seed. I like having alcohol in my coffee fermentations, at low percentages, but it doesn't make it into the final cup because roasting will take care of any leftover alcohol. Remember, like I said, it's, it's very volatile and the heat in roasting will absolutely neutralize any alcohol that could be left over if you made any in the fermentation. Okay, so far everything sounds pretty good. Kombucha starters could be an interesting tool for coffee producers to get a higher production of acetic acid. But how do you get a starter? How do you get a SCOBY in the first place? We know yeast and acetic acid bacteria are already everywhere, right? They cover the surface of most fruits and vegetables, so you'd think you could just pick them from the air. Mm, not so fast. The yeast and bacteria in the zugleal mat are so specialized and work together so well that it's not recommended to try to just make your own out of thin air. You really need to buy it. All of the professionals recommend that you buy a SCOBY starter or that you get one from a friend that has already has an existing SCOBY. Because a SCOBY is not like a sourdough starter. To make a sourdough starter, you need three ingredients, flour, water, and patience. 
With organic flour and enough patience, eventually any beginner can make their own sourdough starter. Which was the funny part about the bread yeast shortage of 2020, when everyone quarantined at home decided to bake bread. Because it was mainly novices who undertook the task. They were buying starters, and then the grocery store ran out. And without yeast packets, people thought that they had to stop making bread. With sourdough, it takes about 10 days to make your own starter. You don't actually need to buy one. But with kombucha, the type of yeast and bacteria that have formed this delicate relationship, it's, it's really difficult to replicate with no experience. So when making kombucha, it's best to buy a starter or get one from a friend who is already making kombucha. Best not to make your own to increase the chances of success. But like sourdough, you'll need to keep your kombucha starter alive and healthy, even if you're not using it. I had never made bread before April 2020, but like almost everyone else, I was stuck in my apartment in Cleveland. It was still cold and baking bread sounded like a good idea. I got a starter from a friend who had been keeping his culture going for about five years. Baking bread was an enjoyable experience. At first, I made a crappy loaf and then a slightly less crappy loaf and then a slightly better one. But it didn't grab me as strongly as it grabbed my partner, Nick. After I made a loaf I was proud of, I stopped. Baking sourdough bread started as my idea, but I quickly abandoned it. Nick, however, was hooked, and he became the bread baker in the family. He worked to increase his hydration levels and played with different ratios of flours. He took care of the yeast culture and named her Susan. In Cleveland, we didn't have any pets, so Susan was our pet. Nick fed her, made sure she was warm enough, and he was constantly checking her bubbles and activity. We got Susan when she was already five years old, and we took care of her for almost a year. When we left the United States in November 2020, we were unsure of our travel plans and packing as light as possible, so we didn't pack Susan. Before we left, we were able to give her to a friend, so even though we no longer live in Ohio, Susan continues to make bread rise in Cleveland. A few weeks into our stay in Columbia, Nick got the itch to bake again. But we didn't have our original starter, and we were so remote that we couldn't get a new starter from anyone else. So Nick went the old-fashioned route and put organic whole wheat flour in a jar with some water and waited a few days, continually feeding the starter until about two weeks had passed and we had a new starter. Her name is Gloria. Gloria takes almost as much care as our dog Luna. This is because we live on a mountain and Luna is a very low-maintenance dog, and because Nick loves bread and he pays a lot of attention to Gloria. We even keep her in the fridge to reduce the care she needs. Cold temperature slows down reactions, and she requires less frequent feeding. But even still, I wouldn't call her low maintenance. When Nick wants to make bread, he needs to take her out of the fridge 24 hours before. Then the bread making process takes another 12 hours. If the temperature in the cabin is too cold, he builds a fire just to warm her up. If it's a sunny day, he tracks the sun, moving Gloria about the room every hour or so to make sure she is warm, but not too hot. Even if you only make bread once a week, or once a month, or once every three months, you still need to keep your culture alive and take care of it between uses. This is the appeal of yeast packets. No maintenance, no upkeep, very little planning. Yes, Mother Nature provides the yeast, so you could do it for free versus buying them. But ask yourself, how much is your time worth? On the farm, Nick makes the bread, so he uses his time to take care of Gloria. I am a less patient person, so in the mill, I like commercial strains of yeast. Yeast you can buy and don't need to constantly take care of. 
As longtime listeners of the podcast know, I use these commercial yeasts for many more reasons, but for the sake of today's episode, we are just talking about the time it takes to maintain a starter outside of actually using it for your fermentation. Maybe you have more time than money. Then maintaining a starter culture could be a good option for you. But to be clear, it's not just a matter of patience or time. These cultures change over time. They evolve. So if you prioritize consistency, your best shot at consistency is inoculation with a commercially available strain. If you like a product that is a little different every time, then maintaining a starter culture is a great option. Anyway, most coffee producers are already keeping starter cultures, although few know that they are doing it. When cleaning and sanitizing is not a priority, you are keeping a starter culture of microbes in the sacks or basket used for picking coffee cherries. You have a starter culture in the hoppers and pulpers and the fermentation tanks too, especially if they are made out of wood or concrete cement or tile. Even a stainless steel tank that is not well washed can be a home to a starter culture. Even your raised drying beds can be homes for starter cultures. Each uncleaned place is an opportunity to inoculate your coffee cherries or pulped parchment. So I'm telling you about sourdough because keeping a kombucha culture alive takes work. You can't just turn it on when you want to use it. You need to be mindful of it for as long as it's in your possession. And now I have a confession to make. While Nick was making his own sourdough starter from scratch, I have a friend here in Colombia who knows that I'm a fan of fermentation, and he gifted me a scoby. For someone who is a fermentation lover, it is a very thoughtful and completely appropriate gift. Very early into my stay here in Colombia, he made a trip to come visit us here on the farm, and he brought this jar with the scoby floating in it. So then I had this giant jar with what looks like a dead jellyfish floating in it. He admitted that the scoby had been a little bit neglected. The zuglial mat was very thick and the acetic acid smell was very strong. But even if that's the case, with patience and care and love, you can bring them back to a healthy stage. But I have to admit, I was intimidated. Partially because of what I told you earlier, I've been afraid of liking kombucha. And I also tend to like the things I make. I'm an amateur knitter and make pretty subpar projects, but because I made them, I love them and I wear them. After all those years of staying away from kombucha, of thinking that it would make me a bad wine taster, I thought that if I made it, I would like it, and then all of these fears of being a bad wine taster came back. Whenever I walked into the kitchen, I felt the wilted floating jellyfish staring at me, daring me to bring it back to life. And even though Nick takes care of Gloria, I felt overwhelmed by taking care of the kombucha. You guys, I went to college and studied microbiology. I make a living from fermentations. I live on a mountain with limited internet. I have zero social life and a lot of alone time. And yet, the protocol for bringing the kombucha back to health and maintaining it healthy was too much for me. I fed it tea and I waited. I fed it juices and I waited. Like a fussy child who refuses to eat what you give it, the kombucha would not respond to my efforts. I felt ashamed. I felt I had failed as a microbiologist. One Saturday morning, when I was cleaning the kitchen, the kombucha was staring me down as I moved it from place to place, taunting me with its lack of activity, taunting me with its weakness. I had enough of feeling bad, and quickly, before I could second-guess myself, I grabbed the sloshing jar and I took it up the mountain and I dug a hole and I buried the kombucha. I buried my shame. I'm not trying to scare anyone away from keeping a kombucha scoby. You may even be confused because you already keep one, and to you, it's the easiest thing in the world. 
Many people with zero micro background keep scobies for years without issue. That's the thing with microbiology. It's dynamic. There are so many variables that we can have vastly different experiences because systems are complex. My goal is to make sure you walk in with eyes wide open and avoid the common stumbling blocks. Maybe you're inspired and curious, but before you head out to process your coffee with a kombucha scoby, there are a few more things to consider. The base of kombucha is traditionally a tea or infusion. Some people use fruit juice. So this means that this method is optimized for liquid. Coffee fermentations are semi-solid. Straight away, it's a challenging match. You're going to need to cover your coffee cherries or pulped coffee with water. All the coffee will need to be submerged. The other element that makes kombucha successful is a zuglial mat that covers the entire surface. All right, so if you have this covering the surface, that means the liquid below will have the lower oxygen environment, and then above you still have all of that access to oxygen. And coffee fermentation tanks are usually very wide, so you will need a very large zuglial mat to develop. The third thing to consider is the importance of temperature. You'll want to ferment in slightly warmer than room temperature. Consistent temperature control is very difficult for coffee fermentations because the buildings are either open to the environment or have no insulation. So the temperature will rise in the day with the sun and plummet at night. If you don't have a good way to make sure your fermentation is in a consistent warm temperature, you could really stress out the microbes and get off flavors or have something that's really difficult to replicate the next time. The fourth thing to consider is your starting sugar content. Usually the liquid base is sweetened to at least 12 bricks. The coffee I am working with at the moment is consistently between 14 to 16 bricks, so it could work, except, like I said, you're going to need to submerge the fermentation. When I start with cherries that are 16 bricks, by the time you pulp and submerge them completely underwater, you could be down to four bricks. The water dilutes it. To keep your SCOBY happy, you will need to add sugar back. So now you have an additional cost or input. Depending on the size of your tank, you could be adding many pounds of sugar to the fermentation. But even with adding sugar, there is a risk. If you add too much, you will also stress the SCOBY. It's not advisable to have a starting bricks above 35. Too much sugar is too stressful, and again, you will get off flavors. Or they may just die because it's a very toxic environment to have that much sugar. You will need to use a refractometer to carefully measure how much sugar you are adding to the fermentation. A typical liquid kombucha takes 7 to 10 days to ferment. I think this is a long time. I strive to keep my fermentations between 36 and 48 hours. However, if you're used to doing 30 days of naturals, then 10 days does seem like progress. But remember, that's 7 to 10 days of consistent temperature and that in and of itself can be a challenge. And that seven to 10 day range is because it's very subjective when you should end the fermentation. So when it's in a liquid, you start to taste a liquid after seven days and see how you like it to know when you should stop the fermentation. And the upper end of that, the 10 days, that's usually when the acetic acid production could be really high and it just doesn't taste very good. But again, it's your taste preference when you think it's done. This is almost impossible with coffee cherries because tasting the liquid in the fermentation is not tasting the coffee. It's not tasting the final product. You still need to dry the coffee, mill it, roast it, and brew it. And it could be several weeks between the end of when you tasted it, when you liked it, the end of that seven days, and the moment you actually taste the coffee. 
So this is really easy to do when you're doing a liquid fermentation, but very complicated when you're doing a semi-solid uh, coffee, cherry, coffee pulp fermentation. And again, this only matters. I'm not saying you're not going to get good results. It only matters to know what is your endpoint so that you can replicate the process if you have positive results and you want to do it again. So in the liquid kombucha instructions, 10 days is a general time frame. But again, there's no actual endpoint because a SCOBY will keep going. Kombucha is a sustained fermentation. The yeast will continually convert the sugars to ethanol and ethanol to acetic acid. Kombucha fermentations will be more sour until all of the available sugar is used up. In a typical kombucha liquid fermentation, when the desired taste is achieved, the liquid is physically separated from the SCOBY. And even if the liquid is no longer in contact with the SCOBY, with the Zugliol mat, after five days in the refrigerator, it will still change flavor because the yeast and bacteria are still present in the liquid. When making typical kombucha, the only way to halt the fermentation is to freeze or pasteurize it. And if you're pasteurizing it, it really defeats the health purposes of drinking it for the probiotic benefits. Oh, also, if you ferment coffee cherries in this method, you cannot claim probiotic benefits in the coffee because a roasting process will kill live active cultures. So, even if you harvest a kombucha at the right time and transfer the liquid to the fridge, it will continue to acidify. This is why people who make kombucha to drink are constantly making new batches. You are basically always fermenting. It's not something that you can turn on and off. It's a continuous process. So how could this affect coffee? I'm thinking that perhaps if you do not wash your coffee thoroughly, like super duty, extra heavy washing with water and a lot of friction after the fermentation, after the original initial fermentation, then when you put your coffee out to dry, the fermentation could keep going if the yeast and bacteria are still present. So during drying, your coffee could continually change in a similar way that your liquid kombucha, even after it's been separated, will continue to change in the refrigerator. So those are basically my warnings if you want to try to do it yourself. However, one thing we didn't cover at all was a coffee kombucha of a different kind. When you process coffee in a traditional washed honey or dry process way, and then roast it and brew it, and then you take that brewed liquid and use that as a base for a traditional liquid kombucha. So remember, kombucha base is usually tea, so brewed liquid coffee could be a good base too. So this could be kind of tricky for labeling moving forward. A coffee kombucha could refer to coffee cherries processed with kombucha starter, or a brewed coffee turned into a kombucha. Because of these challenges, I would be more tempted to try a brewed coffee kombucha than a kombucha processed coffee. <laughs> kombucha processing is not my first choice. I think there are easier ways to differentiate your coffee. However, there are some real fermentation nerds out there who are already trying these methods. I already read you some of the comments the patrons left on kombucha, but they were mostly from consumers or buyers. I also heard from producers who have already tried this method. Michael Harris Conlon is a patron and the 2019 Philippine National Barista Champion and one of the semi-finalists in the 2019 World Barista Championship. He's been in coffee since 2001. He said, I've done this process and it's tricky and we had to make sure the conditions were all right to encourage the right kind of fermentation. This is the coffee that the 2020 Philippine National Barista Champ won his competition with. He goes on. We tried a lot of ways to get this method to work. 
It was after watching your video on processing techniques where I realized that we had to make the environmental conditions as similar to making kombucha as possible. So pulp the coffee, submerge it in water, cover the tank with a cloth so oxygen can get in. We put our huge SCOBY in, then kept temperatures at about 25 to 30 degrees Celsius. After two days, the pH reached 3.8 and we took the coffee out, washed and dried it. The technique really brought out some nice orange, bergamot and jasmine qualities from the coffee that's usually not present in the same coffee when we do a standard wash method. The size of the SCOBY used also made a big impact. The bigger it is, the faster the fermentation. The one we used was 10 inches in diameter and about 2 inches thick. Hello again, post-edit Lucia. I realized in um, listening to this back that I had not mentioned what videos Michael's talking about. The video that Michael mentions in this comment uh, is called Processing Fundamentals, and I have two videos on my website. One from the perspective, if you want to understand processing fundamentals for a producer, and the other covering very similar topics to understand them as a consumer or a buyer. And something I think is interesting is that if you've made it this far, you're probably getting the sense that I don't really recommend this kombucha method. But even if I don't recommend the method, Michael was still able to use the fundamentals in the video to successfully execute this method. So that's the power of having strong fundamentals, that you can have a really strong foundation and build other things that you might be interested in trying. So if you want to try these methods or anything else, I would highly recommend those videos and I'll have that link in the show notes as well. Okay, back to the original audio. So what I don't actually know from this process, what I didn't get to ask was how much coffee was processed in this method using the 10 inch diameter SCOBY. Um, if you do your regular liquid kombuchas, the SCOBYs can be pretty small, just a couple of inches because they're usually the, the width of the container. So that was interesting and helpful. Um, I also heard from Dr. Mack in Thailand. You might remember him from a previous podcast episode as well. Dr. Mack said, we have used these kinds of yeast for processing coffee in Thailand for a while. It is a homemade kombucha. The farmers usually drink it as a traditional medicine and some farmers use them for coffee fermentation. This kombucha was made for generations and I couldn't tell exactly what the original ingredients were. So there you have it. The kombucha question originally came from a producer in India. And then coffee producers in Thailand and the Philippines have already been processing coffee in this method. So this context is interesting. Kombucha and coffee has a potential to be a trendy mainstream product, one that we can potentially find in gas stations in the United States. Or a coffee kombucha could be born out of generations of experience from producers in Asia. It's both ancient and the cutting edge of coffee processing. And I think that's where I have to leave it for today. Huge thanks to the patrons who make this podcast possible. I'm touched not just by their generous donations, but also by how generously they share their experiences like Michael did. If you enjoyed today's episode and are looking forward to future episodes on lactoferments and koji, consider joining Patreon. Or if you don't want the perks of a membership or the commitment, I will leave my PayPal in the show notes and you can make a one-time donation for whatever amount you choose. Your support helps me make more episodes and keep this project going. If you'd like to see the pictures that accompany each episode, join my newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. 
Thanks for spending the hour with me. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.